0: This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Sadly those whoops were for you Robert not for me.
1: I doubt that very much.
0: I never get any whoops. Well, yeah,
1: there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. One for you.
0: <clears throat> I get the odd amen. Anyway, um Welcome, everyone, to uh, the Edinburgh International Book Festival and this session with the actor and writer, uh, that's worth a wee whoop, um, Robert Webb. Robert is best known for his work as the Webb half of Michelin Webb in the award-winning That Michelin Webb Sound and That Michelin Webb Look and as a permanent man-boy Jeremy in the acclaimed Peep Show. His new, mm. <laughs> yeah, this is going to get seriously hairy, you know that. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready for anything. Of course you are. His new sitcom with David Mitchell, Back, is broadcast this September, but the focus of this event today is his new book, How Not to Be a Boy. Robert Hughes, <laughs> that's it. Be serious for this a This is minute. why we're here. Probably. Yeah, of course we are, yeah. um, Let me say a wee bit about the book. Robert (laughs) Hughes, the critic, made an interesting point about creative genius. He wrote, It has been said often and truthfully that genius is nothing other than the ability to recapture childhood at will, but this has to include the terrors and desires of childhood, not just its Arcadian innocence. Now, genius is an embarrassing word to use of any writer. I'm feeling it now. But I'm going to use it here. Okay. Uh, In the sense... Of the ability to recapture childhood at will, because that's one of the things that this book miraculously does. He takes us back into the terrors, desires, sorrows, and comedies of his childhood in the way that great autobiographical writing does. It is a fine piece of autobiographical writing. But his book's more than a memoir, it's also a tract, a polemic against what he calls the trick the idea that men have to be a certain way and how both men and women have been fooled into falling for the trick. Well, the plan for this session is that Robert will read a couple of extracts from his book and tell us what prompted them, and he and I will have a conversation between the two of us, but we'll leave plenty of time for whooping and uh, questions and answers from all of you. So please welcome Robert Webb to the Edinburgh Book Festival. (laughs) Thank
1: you. So, thank you very much, and thank you, Richard, and it's an honor to be sharing a stage with you. Um, I'm going to read a couple of bits. Uh, there's a, a slightly uh, a short, slightly shouty bit, a um, sort of political bit, and then a, a quieter, sadder bit. Um, so, welcome to the first bit. Um, and uh, So, I'm about, all you need to know is I'm about 30. Uh, I don't know it, but I'm getting towards the end of an eight-year relationship with uh, a very nice person called Jenna and it's all starting to come together for me and David professionally. So, the plan that I wrote in the diary on my 18th birthday is starting to fulfill some of its freakish ambitions. Cambridge, yes. Find someone funny to work with, yes. Edinburgh Fringe, woo, yes. (laughs) The job is looking up. The life, though, I'm not really thinking about the life. The life is surely fine until somebody tells me it's not fine. That's life, isn't it? I buy a copy of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, feeling immediately very pleased with myself that I'm man enough to read a popular book about relationships. (laughs) The slight downside to popular books about relationships is that all of them are wrong. (laughs) Wrong because they all start from the premise of difference that men and women are so fundamentally, innately, mentally, and culturally different that they might as well be considered as two different species from two different planets. If you start there, you give yourself permission to accept every stereotype you've ever heard about men and women. So books like the one mentioned, as well as its imitations, with titles like Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps, <laughs> Orion 2001, and Why Women Talk." Why Women Talk and Men Walk, How to Improve Your Relationship Without Discussing It, The <laughs> million 2007, are not there to question the different expectations placed on men and women. They're there to excuse and reinforce them, usually with a truckload of hokey metaphors and dodgy-looking science. For example, in Men Are From Mars, John Gray suggests that men and women react in different ways to stress. Women want to talk about it uh, with close friends, while men want to go into their cave, i.e. retreat into the shed or the games console. Rings a bell, surely. And if the sales of the book are anything to go by, Gray has indeed rung more than 50 million bells. That's how he makes serious cash at this gender lark. Make a generalization and then explain it with a horseshit theory that lets everyone off the hook. (laughs) If Grey had a couple more jokes, he could be on live at the Apollo. (laughs) Men and women. Hey, hey, they're different, aren't they? Hey, why can't men wrap presents? Come on, fellas, you know it's true. There you are, sellotaping your fingers together. Why can't we wrap presents? Hey, ladies, ladies, you have to come and do the wrapping for us, don't you? Hey, you have to do the wrapping. Sometimes we've got you a present and you have to wrap it. I'm saying that you have to wrap your own presents. Exactly. (laughs) Footnote men really do seem to be worse at rapping presents, and I suggest that's because they've had less practice. <laughs> as to why that might be, John Gray is about as interested as John Bishop. And it seems to me to... Tr- Some Bishop fans. Uh, and it seems to Jenna and me... Uh, as once again she goes glumly to bed and I stay up with a bottle of wine to play Civilization 2 for another three hours. That yes, Mr. Grey is definitely on to something. I'm not rejecting Jenna, I'm just in my cave. And when Jenna wants to talk about how our relationship doesn't t- seem to be much fun anymore, that's just because she's from Venus. Luckily, Venusians only want to be listened to. There's nothing a Martian can actually do to help. In fact, if a Martian tries to solve the problem, then he's just showing that he doesn't get that she's from another planet. So I make a big show of listening, because conveniently, that is now the maximum requirement. It doesn't occur to me that the reason why Jenna wants to talk about our relationship is that it really is looking quite peaky. Neither do I consider that as a girl and then a woman she has been told about five times an hour that care of personal relationships wrapping presents, among other things is her job. I, on the other hand am quite certain that care of personal relationships is basically none of my business. I wouldn't know where to start I mean, I'll read the stupid book and everything but the stupid book just gave me a massive pass. So if you don't mind I'll just do my listening and then play Play Civilization 2 because that's precisely what I feel like doing with my time. Men don't have me time, you understand, they just have time. And now, rather marvelously, spending large portions of it alone doing something enjoyable isn't being selfish, it's fulfilling the basic psychological needs of my people, the Martians.
0: Hey! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Should we do the other bit? Yeah. Here's the other bit. Um, we've skipped back to 1990. I'm uh, skip back. I mean, I, I'm skipping back. The, the book is vaguely chronological. Um, and yes, a bit of a change of gear here. So uh, it's April 19. It's August 1990. My mother, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, died of cancer uh, four months earlier. So she died in April. That's what you need to know. Two 17-year-old boys are holding hands in bed. One of them is Will. The other one has just stopped crying. Will is wondering how long this is going to take. It was likely, always, that being best mates with someone whose mum had just died was going to involve some kind of emotional doobly-woobly, but he wasn't expecting it here and now at 5 a.m. in a double bed in a rented holiday house in Torquay. There again, there's never a good time for this kind of thing. I feel the urge to get up and put some clothes on, but then not so fast, because Will is holding my hand. He never holds my hand. I thought, he ventures, I wondered when it was going to hit you, you know, when it was going to sink in. In the dark, my breathing has returned to desultory aftergulps, and I can half smile at this. Sink in is a sporting metaphor, as in, Gary Lineker, you just shut yourself in front of a World Cup TV audience of 700 million people, has it sunk in? <laughs> <coughs> We listen to the hiss of the cassette player as the tape reaches the end of its side. It's a mixtape, and the last track was a song by Prince called Sometimes It Snows in April. That's what triggered this particular bit of sinking in. It's August. Lamely, I say, I suppose I've had time to get used to it. This is the best I can do, given that I'm now talking to him long distance from the land of the recently bereaved. I'm in a new state. We, things, we do things differently here. We know things that people in the old country, the land of everything is still normal, do not know. It's already obvious to me that mum's death is not going to sink in, and neither will I ever be over it. The best I can do is coexist with it. Grief has to talk to normality, normality has to talk to grief, and they both have to listen. It's an ongoing peace deal, a two-state solution. I'm not thinking about this in bed. Instead, I'm thinking the thing that I usually think in the company of Will, I wonder what Will is thinking. He shifts his weight slightly. I didn't hear Ralph come in. Do you think he's sleeping on the beach again? Oh, okay, that's that then. Gently, I let go of Will's hand. Ralph is one of the five other school friends we're sharing the house and the holiday with. Instead, yesterday, sorry, yesterday he wouldn't shut up about how amazing it was to sleep on the flat, warm rocks. And the day before, he wouldn't shut up about his distaste for underarm deodorant because I don't like putting chemicals on my body. I say I don't care as long as he has a bloody shower when he gets back. <laughs> this gets a bigger chuckle than it deserves, and Will's relief makes me glad. Still, the emotional temperature is only just re- returning to normal, and he leaves what he imagines to be a tactful pause before checking his watch with his now free hand. This is the kind of thing that makes me want to found, found a minor religion in his honor. It's a hot summer, and neither of us can be bothered anymore with that extra bit of admin to do with special night clothes. Practical enough, and I guess there must be plenty of other male friends who would be happy to share a double bed naked. I just don't know any. Something is clearly going on, although neither of us could say quite what. He patrols his heterosexuality like a prison guard who has recently lost faith in the penal system. Or maybe one who, fa- who favours reform to the penile system, thanks and sorry. <laughs> It's unthinkable that Will is secretly gay, or even secretly bisexual, but his curiosity, maybe his sympathy, allow him to be secretly something or other with me. And as for me, I don't know what I am, but I know what I like, and what I like is Will. What happens exactly? I touch him, he doesn't mind, I'm grateful. And repeat. A few years later, he touches me, I'm even more grateful. Frankly, the sex is pathetic. But the love, my goodness me. You don't choose your first love, but I was lucky with Will. Whatever's going on, it's it's only the eye-catching headline in a real-life story of everyday teenagers titting around. We drive to Boston and walk into River Island, hearing En Vogue's Hold On playing through the speakers, and suddenly notice we're striding down parallel aisles to the beat. We get to the end of the shop, turn around, and stride, stride straight out again, like idiotic dudes. And all the rest, the underage piss-ups in fields before barn dances, the joint love for all things Prince, Robin Williams, and Fry and Laurie, the competitive impressions of friends and teachers, the pound-a-pint games of pool, my attempts to teach him the moonwalk, his attempts to teach me the chords of A and D, and the many splendid parties and the fun, the honest-to-God fun of it. And there he is, holding my hand in the dark, because he's friend enough and man enough. The friendship will last, but soon he'll have a girlfriend, one that he'll be crazy about. The sense that he's crossed the boundaries of his masculinity will catch up with him and he'll become colder towards me for a while. And he'll remember that he should care, as he currently does not care now, in August 1990, as he gets out of bed and saunters from the room towards the loo, that I am watching the lean, easy movement of his body in the breaking dawn light. As things are, he looks straight back at me with a tarty smirk as he goes through the door. In the window, the clothes drapes have begun to glow with the last day of the holiday. Gentle beams of light pierce the cracks and tears in the fabric as if a benign alien power were probing the room for signs of intelligent life. I notice the moment, and because I'm 17, I notice myself noticing. I marvel that something so present will soon become real only in memory. This moment, a happy one, will vanish. But it will be there to be recreated another time, any time, just as I daily reconstruct the sound of my mother's voice. Uh. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: That passage proves that the book, which is very funny, um, is also very poignant, um, very sad in places, because it's an exercise in self-discovery. And I want to read you something that you wrote in the book. You've got this idea of dad as an abrasive northern male with an overdeveloped sense of adventure who takes women for granted and drinks too much. And you're about to spend 25 years trying to be not that But at the end of your book you write, I'm just this bloke. Not just any old bloke, but one who has invested much pride and energy into believing I'm not a bloke, that I've been acting all my life like one of the worst blokes I've ever met. Tie that together for us, because in a sense, the thing I love about the book, um, and I think good writing is self-discovery, self-revelation. Was
1: that a painful kind of discovery for you to make? Was it releasing? It was a relief, actually. Yeah. It was ah. a very gradual process, working that out. Yeah. Um, because uh, I had a tough time with dad to start with because he you know, he was on a short fuse and he did drink a fair bit and uh, he was a disciplinarian at home. And uh, my mother divorced him when I was five. And then when she died, I went back to live with him and it was, uh, we didn't really see eye to eye. So I felt that I had the, these sort of dad antibodies and that I was going to be the leading anti-dad. Um, and uh, and I sort of went through my 20s and some of my 30s thinking, well, it's okay because I write anti-sexist comedy and, uh, and I vote Labour and, uh, and I've read uh, Man-Made Language by Dale Spender and I'm terribly right on. And so there's no way that this can happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I was starting a family with my... Wife, I realized that I was slipping back into that model of how to be a father, and instead of inventing my own version, I was recreating uh, what I'd seen before. I wasn't, I'd rather chew my own arms off than be violent with the children, but I was drinking a fair bit because I freaked out because mm. you know, what, are, what was my memory of uh, being a father to small children? Well, let's not go there. Mm. And, um, and there was also this breadwinning panic. That suddenly, um, because I'm a man, I need to, you know, I've got to make hay. I won't be famous forever. Let's say yes to everything. Yeah. Um, and Abby was working, and I was working, and there was no need for me to do that. But um, that's what I did, and that's uh, I'm claiming that's why uh, I'm claiming that as the reason I did great movie mistakes. Um, <laughs> uh, and indeed, and indeed, Robert's web. The, uh, the TV show about the internet that uh, would have been a terrible idea, even if I got my way and called it Worldwide Robert. Um, so there was, so that was um, that sort of mm-hmm. the, the the journey really. But I, I credit Abby, my wife, with um, with helping me to realise that I, I was not this super liberal, super hippie person that I sort of thought I was. Let me read you something. Um
0: you wrote towards the end of the book as um, about your father my views of baby boomer non-college educated slightly racist deeply sexist angry white working-class Tories was tempered by having one as a dad um, now I'm serious here because I want I want you to forget the personal stuff the trouble is that bunch of characteristics has created a particular political situation that we're all in now
1: well, I think that description was led by my dad, to be yeah. fair, and, and, uh, and I wouldn't ascribe that to everyone born in the late 1940s. Um, or earlier, like me. or Or earlier, yeah. like you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nineteen, so 1902, yeah, that's right. Well, the, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, you, you look remarkably well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, well, it's the blood I drink that. Uh, you drink. That's why he resigned <laughs> yeah um so but yes uh yeah the the that section of the book comes from um you know I'm describing village life really, and how we have to kind of rub up against each other mm-hmm. uh, and um and I think that's important to remember you know it 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 you know the social media, for example, you know these algorithms and the sort of the the bubble that you can get yourself into where the only people you talk to are people that you agree with um. I think enhances these divisions Um, but families and villages especially are good at you know that everybody's got a secret or everybody's got a you know everyone knows the score about everyone else and and there is an acceptance there that is Mm. necessary as for you know what you're talking about Brexit for example yes if you took that demographic out of the referendum Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be doing Brexit would we but Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and I you know I think it was missold and I you know, I don't think democracy is this static event. I think it's a process. And if after two or four years it turns out that we, we know more than we did, uh, I don't. I think it'd be perfectly sensible to go back to the country and say, "Are you sure about this?" Mm. That is my position in my official capacity as some, just some bloke. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah.
0: I want you reading the procession, though, um, when we do it. I mean, the Americans, in fact, are organizing against their particular kind of predicament because their, their constitution helps them. that. There was a wonderful lecture here last night by Philippe Sands, the great human rights lawyer, who wrote a wonderful book um, essentially about the Holocaust and its impact on his people. Um, and he seriously ended the lecture by seeing some of those ghosts and demons abroad again in the, the ghosts and demons from the 1930s I'm an old man. I mean, I think my generation has really um, created a
1: situation that your generation is going to have to deal with. Well, I'm not sure that it is your generation because, uh, you know, what, what I think my, symf- my sympathy for the yeah, baby yeah, boomers yeah. is yeah. that, you know, is that they're, the, the ones that they came after are quite a tough act to follow. Mm-hmm. These are the people who won World mm-hmm. War II. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I hate to make generalizations, it's not going to stop me. <laughs> um, but I, These, I, I think, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's yeah. possible that, uh, that, that some of their, um, some of their views, uh, sometimes, you know, yeah, I, 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 I've said it, yeah, um, the, okay. the, you know, their, their moms and dads fought a war and, and, and were of a certain, necessarily of a certain disposition. And, uh, and I think that, that probably had an effect of the, I know that dad was influenced by his father, Ron, who was, you know, what happened to me and my brothers at the hands of Paul, was always said to be some kind of hippie crash compared to <laughs> the treatment that Paul received from his father. And, um, you know, the sons of soldiers. Uh, mm, mm.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. The thing that moved me most about the book was it's not so much a redemption story as a reconciliation story between you and your father. You grow to love him. Um, you deliver a wonderful address at his funeral. I'll book yeah. you for mine. Could you, um, <laughs> could you, could you, <clears throat> could you tell us, tell us a bit about that story, and, and uh, tell us, and give us a bit of that address? It really
1: was very moving. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we we got to know each other much better, and I say, you know, on my graduation day, he came uh, with my brothers and. Uh, and I noticed he was looking a bit emotional, and he said, um, um, I'm sorry your mum isn't here to see this, and I know you'd rather she was here than me. Mm. And I say in the book, that's where I forgive him, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then there's, and then it says, or at least that's what I felt at the time. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. a rewrite. Um, yeah. <clears throat> because I never quite, forgiveness, it's, it's hard, and, I, I, and I'm not, you know, when I think about what he was like when I was a little boy, and I imagine me behaving like that to my children. Mm. It's hard, mm-hmm. um, but I, but it, but it certainly we we became basically friends. And I, I grew, there were lots of things about him that I admired. Um, I pretty much liked him. I mean, loving your dad that's that's not really a choice. Mm-hmm. But I did I did eventually like him. Um, I say, you know, this is when he died um, in St Peter's Church in Woodall Spire in twenty thirteen. I delivered the eulogy I'd written for Dad. The place was packed with another 40 people standing outside. I got a few laughs, remembered some of his unremembered acts of kindness, and ended it like this. The sadness that we feel now, we can afford to hold close, safe as we are in the knowledge that grief is love's echo. We only have to listen, and it's there. Today is a heavy day, but this is just an aftershock. The earthquake, the main event, as usual, was love. Yeah. So that's that's how how I, well said, that's isn't I it? That's how about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there was a phase in your youth when you prayed a lot. Um, um, tell us a little bit about the role of religion in your life. Is it
1: still there? Did it did it just kind of disappear? It's it's not really still there. I mean, the, uh, so the, the journey, if you like, was uh, I was brought up in the uh, a very standard Church of England kind of thing. We mm-hmm. did weddings, funerals, and uh, and christenings, but otherwise harvest festival, and I'd be given a huge marrow that was bigger than me to take along, and um, and then by the time I was I don't know eleven, twelve. Um, a couple of years after I stopped believing in Father Christmas, I decided this was a lot of nonsense and the accident of my birth meant that I bl- believed in this kind of God rather than that kind of, if, the God that if I'd been born in India and I'd thought this is crazy. Um, and then when mum died, um, I say that, you know, I described that last conversation I had with her and I say my atheism has a couple of weeks to run, uh, it will vanish when she does, uh, because I won't be able to accept that she has vanished. Mm. And it was just, it felt like I just didn't have a choice, that I, that, mm. I, I could not accept that she had just stopped. Mm. And I kind of, it's enough that, to know, okay, I'm never gonna see her eyes again, I'm never gonna hear her voice again, I'm never gonna smell her smell again, that's bad enough, but the idea that her spirit, or the—you mm. know her, uh, her spiritual presence has disappeared was, unacceptable Mm. Uh, and so I did start to pray just as a sort of way of talking to her Mm. and I was suddenly very grateful that I knew the Lord's Prayer by heart and I'd used that as a sort of gateway prayer sort of modem opening Mm. up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. opening up this pan-celestial chat um, and I sort of had to believe that I was being watched over that I was being looked after. Mm. Um, and that fell away, you know, I think John Lennon said, religion is a concept by which we measure our pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that fell away as my pain lessened, as I, as I, uh, as I learned to uh, coexist with that event. There again, it's not all negative. And when our children were christened, and we had them christened, and we got married in a church, um, there was a feeling in that room mm-hmm. that uh, was brilliant. And it was th- this feeling that, that we're in a community of these complete strangers, but there was just this, this uh, goodwill. Uh, and you can get that in, you know, in, the, in, a, in the equivalent secular environment, but there's something about the church. It's just had time to put on that weight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's got great frocks. And it's got great frocks, so all the cozies, mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: and the bells and the smells. Yeah, yeah. I used to have a silver hat. LAUGHTER um, <coughs> It's been said uh, that the greatest asset a writer can have is an unhappy childhood, uh, but not all miserable not all miserable kids go on to become famous actors and writers. So, can you explain how the chemistry worked in your case? Because, in a sense, it did it did work for you. Um, can you rem- remember your way back into? Because you probably used fun as a way of disarming booties or awkward situations?
1: Yeah, I was never bullies and I definitely put that down. But I was very weedy and I couldn't do football and I, you know, I didn't fit in in various ways. But, um, but I, never, uh, I was never worried because I would always identify, uh, it's not a term I like, but let's say the alpha male of the group and I would make him laugh. Mm-hmm. And I, so I always had a patron basically and and you know so I was always in a in a little gang because I could do impressions of teachers and because I'd make up uh, <laughs> amusing lyrics to pop songs by changing the words in pop songs and making it about uh, a person or a te- whatever but so it was it was a suit of armor mm-hmm. um, I should say that you know I have met some Comic actors and writers and stand-ups who had a perfectly nice childhood, and um, yeah. you know David Mitchell is almost embarrassed that he had such a calm, uh, <laughs> and entirely uh, untraumatic uh, time of it. But, but that um, shows you can tell. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, he's pretty relaxed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's had to make up his own angst. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He's done that really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and by the time I was a student performer, I was uh, I, I was very arrogant and really quite minty. Um, minty is a term that the profession has for a particular kind of grand or starry actor. Run your tongue over your front teeth and savor that minty freshness, and that's what <laughs> and that's that's what uh, that's what a, a minty actor is, is doing. They're mm-hmm. just, they're cherishing that moment that they feel they're not being treated well. <laughs> And I was, I was deeply on. um, That was the the zenith of my obnoxiousness as a as a as a comedian, basically. And then, and and then, obviously, I left university. Nobody knows who the fuck you are, Mm. and uh, and that all. And you know, you get a few edges planed off with a power tool uh, for uh, for several years. So I'm. So I was never as bad as that again. No, you're fully sanctified. Let's
0: go back to what you call the trick. Um, Mm. Do you think there are any gender distinctions that are not social constructs? Are we even allowed to talk about it nowadays? Because, I mean, you can get into trouble for daring to suggest things. It's
1: a minefield. Mm. Um, Mm. The trick is um, the family code word for um, the way boys and girls uh, are expected to behave because of the contents of their pants, Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than the content of their character. And it sort of came out, um, my wife Abby was having a conversation with our oldest daughter, and um, and I think it came out of, she. she Abby mentioned the patriarchy. Um, it's that kind of family. And uh, and Esme, and it came back from Esme as patriarchy, and, that, and then that turned into the trick. And uh, I, I mentioned in the book a, uh, uh, a time when Ezzie had to go to school she had a non-uniform day and she said uh, if I go to school as Spider-Man instead of a princess will people laugh at me? And Abby said they might laugh and what will you say if they do? And Ezzie said shall I tell them they're laughing because of the trick that makes men sad and women get rubbish jobs? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Abby said, "Yes, I think that would be a very good answer." <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's um, that's where I go. Are there any? Is any of this nature the, the whole nature versus nurture thing? I mean, partly it's a, it's an odd um, duopoly. No, that's a business dichotomy. It's a false opposition in, in some ways mm. because you know brains develop according to their environment mm. because we're born so helpless and and. Uh, so in a way, it's not always nature versus nurture. It's because some of some of the nurture is natured. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That, that, um, so, and I'm not I'm not a proper scientist, and this is you know this is just my I'm not a scientist of any kind. <laughs> um, and I but I do cite a couple of books uh, that uh, that I found persuasive. Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine and Pink mm-hmm. Brain, Blue mm-hmm. Brain by Lise Elliott, uh, and a proper social science book called Man Up by Rebecca Asher. Um, they can do this much better than I could. Mm-hmm. This is uh, this is just a story, mm-hmm. um, but I've I found it uh, looking back at the sort of events of my life, reading it through the prism of gender, through my the mistakes that I made because I was expected to do certain things emotional repression being one of the things I was expected to do. You know, I made it, I've done a lot of silly things because I just didn't know how to process my emotions. You know, I, I kind of made it as a man when I stopped being able to answer the question, what's the matter? Without taking it as some kind of attack. What, What's the matter? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing's the matter. <laughs> Why does everything have to be about something? <clears throat> um, usually, you know, is it, it is about something and it's always worth, you know, checking. You know, am I... Shouting at the top of my voice, only because I've lost my car keys, or because I've lost my car keys and I haven't noticed. This is the first anniversary of my father's death. Mm-hmm. That kind of mm-hmm. thing. And being being your own emotional detective um, is a skill that I believe boys are specifically trained not to acquire.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not our diddums, poor old men. It's not a competition. It's you know th- this stuff has a has an effect on on the people they, they share their lives with, and God, that's that, why this yes. is a, yeah. a broadly feminist book, but I don't use the word feminist very often in it because I want people to buy it. <laughs> I'm gonna make them buy it
0: tonight, don't you worry. Um, you are a good writer. you Are you gonna write any more?
1: <laughs> I mean to, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a two book deal, and there's an idea for a novel, uh, and I would like to write Many novels. Uh, I'm getting quite fussy as an actor, um, and uh, I see a gradual shift in emphasis. I am in a there's a new sitcom that I'm doing with David um, called Back, which is coming out uh, uh, next week, I think, and um, that's unturned-downable because uh, it's written by Simon Blackwell and it's brilliant, and I'd love that to, to keep going. Uh, but generally, I yeah, I, I'd like to. I, I don't I don't mind my own company. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Mm. That you know, f- f- five or six o'clock. I know I've got this beautiful, lovely, strong and independent. <laughs> Not just beautiful <laughs> and soft and lovely. Uh, uh, whee! Um, yeah, the bloke comes out. Yeah, yes, right. there it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. I noticed this morning that I've been saying for years when we, you know, with the children crossing the road. Okay, wait for the green man. That's another <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be the green man. What do we think of it? And we had this conversation. It's the green alien. It's a person who's sneezed and he's covered in snot. <laughs> Is uh, you know it's the the thing is you know I'm picking a fight with something that is invisible mm. and everywhere. Mm. Um, so well done, me. Now we're going to open it to the floor. Um,
0: there will be wandering mics. I think we've got two wandering mics. Please don't start speaking until you've actually got the mic in your your hand. And I'm going to go from left to right. Um, so can uh, people this, over there? This is so I can see you, not because I think it makes me yeah. look clever. Yeah, Although yeah. I will take anything yeah. at this point. Okay, who is going to go first? Okay. Keep your hands up so I get an idea, I get an idea. And don't embarrass us by not having any bloody questions. But yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone? Yeah, there's one here. Gosh, they're very, they're very reticent. Oh, there's one over there, over there. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Hello. Um, I just had a wee question about you were mentioning about this whole thing and I think it is quite a gendered thing of guys being sort of forced to repress their emotions and it does kind of squeak out in weird ways when you lose your keys or whatever. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for dealing with that? <laughs> or like helping, helping someone deal with that as well? Like when someone's getting inter- terribly, terribly stressed about something that you know isn't the root of the problem? Uh, speaking as a man, uh, and I'm really careful in the book not to come off like I'm telling men what to do, um, because we don't always, we're not always very good at taking advice. Um, but it's really up, to, it's really up to them. I mean, I mean, what you say about, you know, emotional repression. You know, what are we saying to a boy when we tell him to man up or act like a man? Mm. And it's usually, you know, it can be entirely benign. It can mean, you know, do the thing that needs doing. You know, man up, do your homework. Um, That's nothing wrong with that. But man up, stop crying because you've just grazed your knee in the playground. That, you know, if you hear that often enough, it stops sounding like stop expressing these negative feelings and starts to sound uncannily like stop feeling these feelings. And it goes from, you know, shame, grief, fear, anxiety, uh, pain of any kind. You, you know, you shrug it off and you bottle it up and you forget about it. Or you, if it comes out at all, it comes out as anger because it's boyish and man-like to be angry. And I think it's, I think it's a problem. Uh, I, I, what my advice to women would be, or what my advice to anybody who shares their life with a man would be, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> ask, ask my wife.
0: Um, Up there at the back. Oh, yes, we're coming. Yep. If it's not too personal a question...
1: You're you're lucky I didn't read about my first wank. What would you say the state of your marriage currently
0: is?
1: (laughs) And what has your wife taught you in the last year? What has my wife taught me in the last year? Quite. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going tremendously well. Uh, it's good. I mean, uh, we, I mean, all marriages are, are difficult, um, all long-term relationships. Uh, the feminist writer, Bell Hooks, talks about the work of love and how you need to be good at, you know, the, and I, I talk about care of personal relationships and that it's, it shouldn't just be one person's job. And you have to sort of keep it under review, uh, even when you don't feel like it. And usually that conversation is initiated by Abby. Uh, And it's going. Do you think we've got a problem here? No, I don't think we've got a problem here. Do you think we've got a problem here? Maybe we've got a problem here. Should we talk about the problem? Yeah, okay, we'll talk about the problem. Um, So, but I think it's uh, you know, all relationships are a work in progress, and uh, and then somebody dies and it's over. Uh, (laughs) You know, guys, there's no happy ending. Um, But um, but while we're here, uh, yes, it's worth. Keeping you know just keep an eye on it and keep it under review, and keep talking and what she taught me in the last year, um, how to shut up <laughs> <laughs> not very successfully don 't shut up, we
0: like it the, the question there uh, hand up, yep, yep, there we are Good, thank you Hi there if you 're um Moving away from acting slightly, are you interested in directing film or TV?
1: No, I've never been interested in directing. It looks like uh, you have to make all the decisions. You're surrounded by 30 people who are all looking at you going, what do we do now? I would hate that Um, as an actor. I'm not moving away. Let's not get carried away. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, can't afford to retire. Um so uh no I'd like to I I will always love acting but um uh, but no uh, as an actor you know you turn they literally they literally send a car because they can they don't trust you to find your way rightly to tr- to find your way to the studio so uh so you get you get treated very nicely they're long hours and you you have to be yeah, you have to be nice to everyone. It's kind of part of your job. I mean, it's part of everyone's job to be nice to the people they're working with. But you, but there is something about actors that they are expressly supportive. And that's why we called lovies because, mm-hmm. you know, any minute now you might be doing a sex scene with somebody you've just met. And uh, it's never happened to me. But, um, <laughs> but it, you know, it is a very, very peculiar job. And that's why we're all so touchy-feely because um, that's sort of part of the thing but directing no i, I admire direct directors who you know what they're doing but i would be a terrible one any more questions in this bit here
0: i can't see so yeah there's one there yep yeah, yep yeah. thank you hi um as a writer i was wondering about your inspiration was this a book you felt you've had in you for a long time or were there a series of events that really made you feel like you needed to do it
1: there a lo- yeah i mean that i mean I've always admired Clive James' uh, memoirs. <coughs> uh, they're very funny, and his style is just uh, wonderful. In fact, I was careful not to read them while I was writing this, because it's just demoralizing. Um, so so there's that. Um, Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman was uh, some sort of catalyst, I would admit. Uh, I enjoyed that book, and I wondered if there was room for a, a male perspective on the same sort of issues, and then... Uh, I thought, oh, shall I do this kind of survey of masculinity in the culture? So here's a chapter on Top Gear, and here's a chapter on men's magazines. And then in the next moment, I sort of thought, I would hate to read that book. So (laughs) why would I write it? And then uh, it kind of became obvious that the way to approach it was through a memoir, because that's where it starts. It starts in childhood. Um, So it became suddenly um, the obvious way to to approach it. Um, And I thought I had a good idea. And you've got a colossal
0: advance. I mean, what's the... Uh, <clears throat> yes. Anyone in this section here? <laughs> yep, yep, yep.
1: Uh, yes, I,
0: I was uh, uh, very similar. I had a rather tense uh, relationship with my father. And... Um I've got two sons and one of them was uh, very extrovert and did all the talking and then he went off to university and the younger one uh, I had to spend, in fact, with my, separated from my wife and we had to spend every weekend with them. And I suddenly realised I was behaving like my father. I mean, admittedly, I was a bit depressed at the time. And what absolutely shook me was, a few years ago, he said, well, I thought you didn't like me. And I thought, oh, oh me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I've ever met any man that's had a good relationship with his father. I, I, met, I, 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 lit- met, I met one, and I didn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I, um, I say in the book, if you want a man of a certain age to stare into the middle distance for five seconds... Uh, ask him about his relationship with his father yeah. and, uh, and then expect the word complicated to feature quite heavily in the next sentence. Um, mm. it's, it's rare. And, the, and the, the men that I admire in my personal life, friends, I think about the qualities that I admire in them, the gentle fathers and the fun and creative and supportive and caring partners and the people who you catch in random acts of kindness. These are the, these are the adults. These are the people who've outgrown their gender, and that's sort of where I'm trying to go. But masculinity has nothing to do with it, you know, they're not, it's, you know, the opposite of this is, is watching an episode of The Apprentice, where you see all of those, uh, you know, the, the most harmful and self-harming aspects of masculinity being busily performed. You know, the, the, the need to dominate other people, the weaselly interest in hierarchy, the suspicion of nuance the idea that inflexibility is a virtue, mm. um, all of that stuff. And um, so, you know, that's, that's, the, that's, <coughs> the, that's the stuff I'm trying to get away with. I'm sure he likes you now. <laughs> you seem very likeable. and yeah. only, a, only a nice man will one, worry about
0: v- it. One up here. Um, and then over there.
1: Right. Hi. Um, Hello. You said that you had quite a tough childhood. Um, what... Um, what advice would you give young people who are going through a similar situation as you? Well, I'm painfully aware that um, a lot of people, I mean, every day have a considerably worse time than I did. And that, that's the first thing to say. Um, so it was hard until I was five, and then five to 17, it was great. I, you know, I've got nothing to moan about. Um, but if, if they are, um, I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, my escape was through reading and uh usually there's at least one parent or grandparent or someone at home who is uh, who is being nice um, and there are teachers who help um, and there's there's always television. I found television to be um really useful um you know if you're lucky enough to find something that you're good at and that you can pursue and that you can immerse yourself in and practice so much you get good at it and when the practice doesn't feel like practice and eventually people call it talent um, Mm -hmm. then there's that Um, I don't know up there? Yep, yep of the, of okay, yep. Yep. and then um, back there. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that your book was part of a two-book deal. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the second book. No, because it's such a good idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and it's going to take me at least a year and a half uh, before I'm here bollocking on about it. Um, <clears throat> that I'm not going to give that away, not even the genre. It's a hybrid, it's two genres, which usually is a bad idea. But in, <laughs> in this case, it's going to be a triumph. <clears throat> yep
0: um, Is a, yeah. uh, what advice would you give to an aspiring young comedy writer who's trying to sort of you know, aspire to be similar to you not <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, similar personality wise but just in them terms them of like, actually my, making waves in the comedy
1: world my condolences uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, um, it's, it's hard now because I mean there was uh, it seemed obvious to me that there was this path and I, you know, the people that I admired on TV, the people who made me laugh, uh, I noticed a lot of them seemed to have gone to university and then I was sort of trying to read about them in the Daily Mirror and watch them on Wogan and, uh, or read about them in the Listener in the school library and lots of them seemed to have gone to this one university in particular and it was Cambridge and apparently it was quite hard to get into and I took, because mum died halfway through my A-levels, I took a, f- I made a real meal of it, you know, my A-levels lasted three years I had to go back to school for a year. That was a lot of fun, um, but then I did that, and then they, it just seemed that there was this path: university, Edinburgh Fringe, um, Radio Four. Uh, I don't know if that path is—it's a lot harder now because of student fees, of course. And Radio Four—they, st- I think—they still have an access show where you can just send in sketches. It's not week ending, but it's the, the, there are things that, that you can do. There is the internet. I mean, there—you can you can film something on your phone. In a way, that's you know, that's that's a mixed bag because it, the whole thing is so fractured that it's it's tough to find an audience. Um, and there's only so many things you can do on your phone. You know, at some point you're going to need a budget. You know, uh, to to if you want to dress up like Henry V. Don't write a sketch about Henry V. But that <coughs> but that kind of thing. Um, so it's um, my my advice would be keep going. Um, and keep practicing, and get in front of a live audience as often as you can, because the audience will teach you much more than a drama teacher can. Any drama teachers in the audience? They're great guys, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's the audience who yeah. will who mm-hmm. will help you. So do do as much in front, even if you even if it's for free. Um, you need to get used to uh, that noise and where it and how to inspire it.
0: Who else? There's one, one at the back there, Yep, and then uh, down here. Thank you. Okay. We'll go with the one at the back first. Uh, my daughter advised me not to ask you why your two elder brothers were named after saints and you were named after a king of Scotland. <laughs> Actually, the reason I asked was I had a sister, uh, much older, with whom I didn't have a great relationship, but you, in your book, speak so warmly of your two older brothers. Uh, I thought it would be nice to hear you say a little bit about that.
1: Thank you. Um yeah, Mark and Andrew and they are 5 and 6 years older than me. Um so when I was growing up I didn't uh, they were doing their own thing. They were climbing trees and having their arms in plaster most of the time. Uh so but we got to know each other much better later. They're very different people. Um they haven't always got on terribly well themselves but they both like they both get on well, they both like me, but we all get on with each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Mark is this uh, very independent and assertive guy, and Andrew is slightly more thoughtful, um, but they're both funny, and, they, um, and they're good chaps, um, and I, yeah, I'm very proud of them. And I have a sister too, uh, again, much younger. Uh, called Annabeth, and she's terrific. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, they're, they're lovely people. Good. Oh, yeah. Hi. Yeah.
0: Um, what impact do you think your
1: childhood um, and your relationship with your father had on your ability to play Jeremy? Because he's quite a complicated character. Is he, though? <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> I. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I was particularly channeling my father um, (laughs) because I mean you see Jeremy on the page and it's you know the challenge was to make him likeable enough to want to spend half an hour with him because what does he do I mean he's this petulant um, sarcastic not enormously bright um, aggressive uh, often immoral liar Um, and but he has these redeeming sort of puppyish enthusiastic qualities and um yes uh, that was that was what I was doing it was just uh, I don't think I was playing anybody I think that it was Sam and Jesse the writers are so good that he just jumps off the page and so it was just a question of standing in the right place and saying the right uh, words <laughs> in often the right order Yep. who's next yep
0: uh. Just keep your hands up and wave them, and I'll catch you, yep yeah, yep yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep,
1: yeah. yep. How long did the book take you to write, and what were the most challenging aspects? Two years, um, on and off yeah. uh, there was so there were two sort of sections, I spent a very long time on the proposal, which was going to be sent out to publishers, um, so I sent them the first two chapters and a long document, um, which was a pack of lies about what was going to happen in the rest of the book <laughs> um, and uh, so that took. Uh, I, I, I think I on and off I sort of dithered around with that for a year um because I wanted to make sure that they n- to to give them the impression that I knew what I was doing um and that this this wasn't going to be a, a sort of celeb rags to riches wh- why I became so super duper kind of uh, but I'm not famous enough to write a book as dull as that um so I had to sort of uh, sell it like that and then and then once we got the deal it sped up a bit and I got the first draft done in I don't know s- five months, um, and then and then the revisions, the endless uh, rewriting. I mean, it's all rewriting, but it, but, um, but uh, yeah. So on and off about about two years. But what was the hardest stuff? Um, Mom getting ill, mum dying. Of course, was emotionally challenging, but also it happens in the middle of the book, which is structurally quite a tricky bit. I found. Um, because you get halfway through and you're sort of going, yeah, have I got enough story uh, for, the, for the second half? I think that's why I wrote the, the, that long document saying this is what happens in the rest of the book, because I, I want, I've never done it before. I didn't want to get to page 80 and go, oh, I've, I've run out of life. Um, uh, and the ending, for, for, the, for, this, for the same reason, that the, the, the ending is this feeling of just trying to bring all this, you know, bring this, this boat into port. If that's the right uh, thing, and also to you know to tie together the, the the themes and the strands that I've that I've set up uh, in the rest of the book, so that was hard too. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Uh, hello. Um, I can see a bit of uh, internalized sadness sometimes for some of the men in my life um, as they're sort of struggling with the, with the kind of patriarchal concepts. So I guess I'm sort of wondering if you know, even if you don't want to give advice. Um, Uh, suggestions for men (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: ideas (laughs) sounds Um, a little bit like advice
0: (laughs) 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 because it's often it's difficult for men to have role models that are even talking about this Mm. maybe that's possibly not what you want to be either but anyway
1: no, I mean, I don't want to come, o- come over like some feminist Yoda who has, you know, all the answers. I don't have any answers. I think I'm going to insist that, you know, this is my story and this is what I reckon about my life. And if I ring some bells, then so much the better. Um, but I, uh, I'm very keen not to tell anyone what to do, which may seem cowardly, but um, I'm a coward. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. This may be a, a dangerous question to ask sitting next to my son, um, and it may be an unfair question to ask you, but uh, is there anything that you have thought, in the, having written the book, that you would change about being a father yourself? Uh, no, I mean I talk about how I wasn't fully present when the children were little. Uh, and uh, but what what would I change about me now? I think uh, you know I've tried to describe a process that I'm in the middle of that I'm trying to do. That's to say to just to, to be around and sober and fun and reliable. I mean reliable is just such an underrated mm. thing in partners and parents, and just to just to be there. Um, and um, that's that's those are my priorities.
0: Time for one more question. Up there. Well, I'll give you two. Since I'm in a good mood, it's been such a lovely evening. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hi, Robert. I'm just wondering, hello. Just wondering, um, like, if you, I'm assuming, if you were saying that you were kind of repressed emotionally, um, when was, sorry, if I'm allowed, make that assumption. Yeah, Um, yeah. when When was the change or a click in you that you were like, no don 't want to do that or that something majorly happened or a person or a thing if that 's um, if i 'm allowed to ask that and Oh, And you 're very so. allowed to ask that It's mean, just a question of how I can answer it um, i there was no uh, there was no single thing it 's a uh, uh, Abby has made a difference um, and having children has made a difference um, but i but otherwise it is a a, a general um, self discovery which is where mm. we started mm. um, Yeah, um, I can't, I can't, I don't know. Again, well, again, it's very dissatisfying. Remember the funny bits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go.
0: Hi, I was wondering if you learned anything new about being a man from your amazing comic relief flash dance? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) I learned that everyone's legs look better uh, in a pair of American tan tights. I actually had, uh, I got wolf whistled by a, a white van driver um, <laughs> the day after. He wound the window down. Well, oh, mate, nice legs. Uh, <laughs> all right, he's taking the piss. No, seriously, nice legs. <laughs> and, um, which, was, which was very nice. Uh, no, no, that was, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I was pretty scared. Uh, that was live in front of a uh, good seven, seven, eight million people. So I, I know no fear now. Uh, that's not true. Um. It's been a wonderful hour. Um,
0: thank you, Robert. It's a great book. Please come and get it signed. I'll take Robert to the signing tent, which is along there. I'll go and get him a beer. Um, and um, But thank him for... An honest, funny, touching, moving, magic hour. Robert More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August, 2018.